passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Perhaps the greatest threat facing the church today is both an inward and an outward threat. It is the threat that is facing us uh, of the uh, infringements that we're beginning to see on religious liberty. And I'm not up here to kind of uh, proclaim doom and gloom or anything like that. Uh, but I, I do think that it is somewhat serious what we're seeing in, in, our, in our culture from both the, the left and from the right that we are experiencing. Religious liberty is, yes, a constitutional right, but even more than that, it is a God-given right. James Madison said this over 200 years ago. It is the duty of every man to render to the creator such homage and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. This duty is precedent both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. Before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. And if a member of civil society who enters into any subordinate association must always do it with a, res with a reservation of his duty to the general authority. Much more must every man who becomes a member of any particular civil society do it with a saving of his allegiance to the universal sovereign. What on earth did he just say? It's an important passage or it's an important statement on religious liberty. And essentially what he is saying at the beginning of our country over 200 years ago was that no government has the right to tell uh, an individual how they should live out their relationship with the creator. Every single person has the right to discover or to figure out how they're going to live out their relationship with their creator. Now, that isn't saying that every single religion is true or every single thing about God is true. That's not at all what Madison is saying here. Indeed, as Scripture tells us, there is only one way to God, and that is found in Jesus alone. What Madison is saying is the exact same thing that we find uh, implicitly throughout the entire Bible. If you look at the New Testament, you study the New Testament, you see that it is not the power of the sword, but it is the power of the gospel that compels people to, to believe, that brings about life change in people's hearts. It is not the power of the sword, but it is the power of the gospel. And you might be wondering, why on earth am I bringing all of this up this morning? Well, if you've been, unless you've been completely unplugged from our culture for the last couple decades, you are well aware that our culture is changing. The lives and beliefs of people today are very different than they were 20 years ago, let alone 50 years ago. And what we see today is the legitimacy of the First Amendment, this protection of our speech, this protection of our beliefs, is actually being infringed upon by both the secular left and the secular right. It's being infringed upon by the secular left when we see LGBT activists claiming that uh, conscientious uh, abstention from participating in civil ceremonies is actually a form of discrimination. And we see it from the secular right when the leading presidential candidate has mentioned multiple times that he has a desire to censure free speech and he actually wants to ban certain people from the country because of their religion. And when we see this, 
Even as Christians, even if we're not directly affected, we have right to be concerned. Indeed, we are entering into a new era of church history here in the United States. For the first 200 years or so of our existence as a nation, the church has largely existed without uh, a fear of reformation or, or, or of, of being uh, censured by the government. In fact, in large part, for the first 200 years of our nation, it has been largely advantageous to be a Christian. Even those who attend church infrequently would say that they are Christians because of the societal benefits that would come from it. But today, that is no longer the case. We live in a culture where it is no longer just not advantageous to be a Christian, but in many circles, it is actually a hindrance to advancement. This is why we see so many people allegedly leaving the church And as we see this culture change, we begin to see a growing hostility to Christians. And I mentioned I'm not up here to to say that, that, you know, doom and gloom and that the end is nigh and, and all that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not even saying that Christians here in the United States are being persecuted. I think if we say that we are being persecuted here in the United States, it does a disservice to our brothers and sisters across the globe who are facing death for their faith. And indeed, it sparks within us a a sense of self-pity when we call ourselves persecuted here. But even though we might not be persecuted here in the United States, we are seeing a loss of Christian advantage. We are seeing the ridicule of Christians becoming more and more in vogue. And perhaps you've experienced that yourself in your own life. Perhaps you've experienced that when you try to hold to biblical principles while at work. Perhaps you have experienced that when you see the whispers and the eye rolls of those who who think that you have a holier-than-thou attitude among your peers. Perhaps you even experienced it in your own family, whether in your immediate family or your extended family, when people can't believe that you believe all of that Christian stuff. In the face of opposition, how does God respond? Does God respond. Well, this morning's text, Genesis chapter 30 and Genesis chapter 31, are really all about God's response when we are facing uncertainty, when we are facing hardship, specifically hardship at the hands of others. As we look at this text, we're going to see the, the really the final chapter of Jacob's life with his uncle and father-in-law Laban. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been exploring Jacob's life, and we've seen a bit of a transformation in Jacob. Not a big one yet, but we've started to see the seeds that God is sowing come to bear fruit. Jacob, when we first met him, was a scoundrel. He was a schemer. He was selfish, only thought of himself. In fact, in our first week, looking at Jacob, we compared him to his father, or with his grandfather, Abraham. And we said, well, Abraham is the perfect example in Genesis of faith, of obedience, And we look at Jacob and we say, well, Jacob is the perfect example of grace. Indeed, the only reason why Jacob is known to us is because of grace, because God has been gracious to him, looks over his sins, his faults, and his failures, and uses him for his kingdom. Indeed, as we look at Jacob's life, it's especially in the head-scratching moments, in the moments where we can't believe what he is doing. We are reminded of God's faithfulness. 
Specifically, we are reminded that God's faithfulness to us is not rooted in what we do. Instead, it is rooted in who he is. God's grace is not for those who have it all together, but especially for those who are desperately sick, who are in desperate need of it, just like Jacob. As we open to Genesis chapter 30, we're going to explore Jacob's final years with his uncle and his father-in-law, Laban. And as we study this passage, we're going to see one key truth for us about God's commitment to us. Specifically, God's commitment to us in the midst of hardship. And that is this. God's commitment to us is greater than those who would do us harm. God's commitment to us is greater than those who would do us harm. Harm In the face of hostility, God remains faithful. God's commitment to you is strong. The veiled threats that you may experience to your job security, in the midst of those, God's commitment to you is greater. God is bigger than the uncertainty facing you by following him in a world that doesn't want to follow him. God's commitment to us, God's commitment to his people is greater It's stronger, it's more powerful than those who would wish to do you harm. This is abundantly clear in Jacob's life. If you look back, I I think that you may see the exact same thing is true in your life as well. God's commitment to you is greater than those who wish to do you harm. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 30. We're going to start in verse 25. And if you look at the sermon notes this morning, you notice that we're going to be covering approximately 75 verses this morning. Uh, That's probably one of the biggest chunks of scripture that we bit off in one time. And if you have been here before and you know the way we approach God's word, you might be a little nervous right now that we'll be getting out uh, in time for uh, the canoe and kayak thing and not a moment too soon. But what we're going to do is we're going to jump around a little bit. We're just going to hit the highlights this morning. I encourage you sometime this week to take this passage and read it on your own to flesh out everything else that is happening here to Jacob as he deals with his father-in-law, Laban. Let's pray as we approach God's word. Father, we thank you so much for your unwavering commitment to us, to your people. God, we thank you that you are with us, that you stick with us, that you remain steadfast in the highs and in the lows. And God, we thank you that you do not abandon us, but you continue to show us steadfast love, even when we fail you, especially when we fail you. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to develop a radical confidence in you, a radical confidence in your commitment to us, to your people, in the face of uncertainty and in the face of adversity. And God, it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, as we approach this passage this morning, we start in verse 25, and we see verse 25 really picks up right immediately after verse 24, even though there is a header there. Verse 25 mentions that the moment that Rachel has had Joseph, Jacob decides it is time to leave. It's the time to depart from his father-in-law's house. And of course, why wouldn't he in this moment? Remember, as we've looked at his life, we've seen that he has spent 14 long years struggling with his father-in-law. He spent 14 hard years working and laboring for Rachel's hand. He has been taken advantage of a great deal of this marital turmoil that he's been experiencing for the last seven years is all because of 
his father-in-law. And with the birth of Joseph, especially with the, the end of his years of service for Rachel's hand, Jacob decides enough is enough and he wants to get away. Let's pick up in verse 27. But Laban said to him, if I found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Laban, when when Jacob approaches him and asks to leave, Laban is a little bit caught off guard here. And so he says anything to make Jacob stay. For the last 14 years, he's gotten a lot of free labor from his son-in-law. And what's more, his son-in-law is a good worker. His flocks have grown a great deal under his tenure. He went from a small, inconsequential farmer to one of the most powerful men in Haran. And the reason that Laban identifies here is because of Jacob's God. He looks at Jacob's God and says, that's the reason why I have grown powerful. And that's the reason why I've grown wealthy during all this time. And so Laban does something that's a really uncharacteristic move from him. He gets down on his knees and he begins to beg Jacob to stay. This phrase, if I have found favor in your sight, is a phrase that's only used when a weaker party is addressing a stronger party. Laban, the man who has taken advantage of Jacob time and time again, gets down on his knees and begs Jacob to stay. He doesn't beg him to stay because he's going to miss his daughters. He doesn't beg him to stay because he wants to be a part of the lives of his grandchildren. He begs him to stay because he wants more money. He wants to grow more and more powerful and richer because of this man. But notice what Jacob does in response. Jacob responds to him and says, of course you've grown rich while I have been watching your sheep. And notice that as he repeats over and over in these next verses, the word I, he says over and over again, I have done this. I have done that. I have done that. And what he's trying to say here is that God has been a part of it. But the real reason why you're growing is because of me. The real reason that God is blessing you is because of my hard work. I have worked hard. I've worked my tail off to make you rich, Laban. And now it's time to take care of my own family. It's time to set out on my own venture. Pick up in verse 31. And he, being Laban, said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. And Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. So Jacob agrees to stay, he agrees to work, but he doesn't do it for pay. The exact same phrase that uh, Laban offers him here, name your wages, is the exact same thing that he was told 14 years earlier. 
when Laban last took advantage of the prices and the wages that he would work for. And so instead of of bartering with Laban about how he's going to get paid, he instead places his pay in God's hands. He says, I'm going to take possession of any sort of speckled or spotted or striped sheep and goat, and I'll place those in my flock. That way you'll know what belongs to you, and I will know what belongs to me. If, if Jacob's, uh, excuse me, if Laban's flock grows as a whole, then proportionately Jacob's flock and his portion should grow as well. If it shrinks, then Jacob's portion should shrink as well. And in essence, this is a form of commission that he's working off of here. In the midst of this fractured relationship, one that has already been filled with deceits, this is really one of the only ways to avoid disputes between the two of them. But the thing is, Laban is getting a bargain here. Laban is getting a bargain. If you look at the, the traditional wages for shepherds in ancient times, especially during the time of Genesis, it was roughly about 10 to 20 percent of all of the product. And so they would receive 10 to 20 percent of the wool that was uh, accumulated from these sheep, and then they would uh, take a uh, to their own flock, about 10 to 20 percent of the new, uh, new births that were given to the flock. But Jacob sets his wages at far less. The birth, uh, the birth rates of these types of sheep and goats is, is much lower than 10 percent, especially if all of the other types of speckled and striped and spotted sheep are taken out of the flock. We don't know exactly how much, but instead of 10%, it's probably a lot closer to 1% or 2% that Jacob is bartering for here. Jacob, in an effort to make sure that he doesn't get taken advantage of, decides to take a significant pay decrease, a pay cut to protect himself from Laban. And just imagine Laban. This man who doesn't care about his son-in-law. He must be laughing with glee at this moment. Because his son-in-law is so foolish right now. This is the same man that he duped into marrying Leah without working out the details. Now he's working for him at a bargain rate. What's worse is Laban breaks the contract the moment that they shake hands and agree to terms. He goes back through his flock. And he pulls out all of the speckled and striped and spotted sheep and goats. And he puts them three days away from Jacob. This is a deceiver. A man who would take advantage of even his own family members. He doesn't care that Jacob has a ton of mouths to feed. He doesn't care that Jacob has worked for him for, him for 14 years and done good work. He laughs and smiles as Jacob essentially sells himself into slavery. Slavery. Laban is now on cloud nine with these new terms and with his foolish new business story. Now, if you've read this passage before, you know that things don't end up the way that Laban expects. Indeed, Laban, because of God's hand, begins to lose his power and his wealth, and Jacob begins to accumulate it. But Jacob turns not to God, but he turns to a popular superstition at the time, something that has no evidence to back it up, just like the mandrakes that we looked at last week, something that was completely superstition. But people believed anyway without anything to back it up. And he believed that if you had visual stimuli during conception, then that would affect the offspring. 
And so what he does is he takes some sticks and he carves into them. He peels back the bark to make them spotted and striped and speckled. And he places them in front of the strong sheep and goats when they go to mate. And he takes them away when the weak ones do. And lo and behold, it somehow works. It works that he begins to have speckled and spotted sheep. And over the next six years, this is what Jacob does. Over the next six years, he does this over and over and over again. And his flocks grow. And Laban's proportionately decrease. The passage, uh, the chapter ends with this phrase. And I think it's it's a beautiful way to sum up these six years of Jacob's life. It says this in verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly. And had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Just like his grandfather, just like his father Isaac, Jacob starts with little and turns it into much. God's blessing is indeed on this man like it was with those who came before him. God is keeping his promise to Jacob just like he kept it with Abraham. And just like he kept it with Isaac. And just like he keeps it. With us. As we look at this passage, as we look at this section, we might ask, well, what specifically can we learn from these six years? What specifically can we learn about God's commitment? I think there are three things that this passage tells us very briefly. First, God is committed to his promises, God is committed to his promises. Genesis 28, a couple chapters before this, God reveals himself to Jacob. And as he reveals himself to Jacob, he promises him that he will be great. He promises him that he will have many offspring and that God himself will be with Jacob. As we look here 14 years later, 20 years later, it's exactly what has happened. God has made him great. God has given him offspring. God indeed is with him. Last two weeks, we have looked that this promise is true, even in the midst of hard times, even in the midst of difficulty, God is with Jacob. For 14 years, this man has been forced to die to the world and to trust in God by coming face to face with his own scheming, his own scoundrel nature by coming face to face with Laban. God has been with him. And now we see another way that God is with him. God is with him through blessing. Friends, the same is true for us today. God is with us. We can be sure of one thing, no matter whether we are in the sunshine of life or the rain of life. It is this, that God is committed to his promises. God is committed to his promises. He will always keep his promises. You might be saying, well, what exactly does God promise me. Scripture is filled with the promises of God. Just a a few that are found here. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Ezekiel chapter 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Philippians 1, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, you could really read the entire chapter as a promise from God, but specifically starting in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in all our weakness. 
For we do not know what to for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He searches hearts, and He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are being called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that all of those phrases are in the past tense, even though they are referring to us today. What then shall we say to these things? If God is with us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we, he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, those are the promises that God keeps to you. You can be confident that God will keep those promises, that God is committed to those promises in the exact same way that God is committed to his promises to Jacob here in Genesis chapter 30. And here's the beautiful thing. God's commitment to these promises does not depend on your ability to follow God. They do not depend on your ability to follow him. They depend on God alone. Hebrews makes this clear when it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Friends, God keeps his promises not because of you and me, but he keeps his promises because he has said that he will keep his promises. And God will not lie. God swears by himself that he will do these things. God is committed to his promises. Second, God is committed to blessing his people. God is committed to blessing his people. If we look at Jacob's life, the source of all of his blessing is God. Every wealth, all the wealth that he accumulates, it comes from God. This is soon clear. As we look at the next chapter, it is not Jacob's superstitious ways that brings him wealth, but it is God alone. 
Jacob worked hard, yes. Jacob planned, yes. Jacob was wise in choosing to mate strong animals with strong animals, but it was ultimately God who brought blessing. The psalmist declares this in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor in, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman watches in vain. If you look at your life, if you look at your life and you see all of the things that have happened on your behalf, the things that you have been given, that you have been blessed with, they all come from God alone. All of our blessings, all of our endeavors come from God alone. So here's the thing. Sometimes God chooses to bless us. Sometimes God chooses to bless our endeavors and we prosper. And yet sometimes in God's infinite wisdom, he chooses to withhold his blessing upon our endeavors. And they do not prosper, but they fail. If we looked at our lives, we took a poll around this room and said, be honest, how many of you would say that there are people who are in quote-unquote, more important positions, have greater authority, or uh, have greater leadership, have more wealth and a, a higher paycheck. If you were to look at those people and say, I'm more qualified than them. Each and every one of us, if we were honest, could probably say that we could identify one, two, ten people that are in higher positions than us but are less qualified than us. In the exact same way, if we looked the other way and looked at those that have less power, less authority, are not getting paid as much, if we looked at them, we could probably, if we are honest, admit that some of them have greater gifts and greater talents than we do. Why is that? Well, we see right here in Jacob's life. We see right here in Psalm 127 the reason. God, in his wisdom, blesses, and God, in his wisdom, chooses to withhold blessing. God is the source of your blessing. It comes from his hands alone. God is committed to blessing his people, yes, but oftentimes that doesn't look the way we would expect. God is committed to blessing his people. Third thing from this first chapter is this. God is committed to justice. God is committed to justice. We're going to see this more clearly in the next chapter, but it's very clear here. God's justice is loud and clear in these verses. Laban is receiving his just desserts for all of the trickery and all of the deceit that he has planned against Jacob and probably, undoubtedly, untold others. God is committed to justice. God is a God of justice. If you have ever been wronged, if you have ever been hurt, if you know others that have been wronged and hurt, we can rest in this truth. God is just. God is just in our lives. We can trust in him to bring justice. And oftentimes it happens like in Laban's life. Oftentimes it happens in this life. But even if it doesn't happen in this life, we can rest assured that there is a great white throne of judgment and justice will come. God is committed to justice. 
That's what we see in these first six years of, of Jacob's life that we're looking at this morning. As we turn the page to Genesis chapter 31, we see that God's commitment continues. Indeed, as we turn to chapter 31, we see this sudden change of the relationship between Jacob and Laban. This relationship has always been a little rocky, but now it's even more and more strained as Jacob continues to become more and more successful. Jacob surely felt like leaving. Surely thought about leaving as Jacob, or excuse me, as, as Laban turned his back upon Jacob. As his brothers-in-law began to turn their backs upon him. But it was God who showed up and made it clear. Chapter 31, verse 3, it says this. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Turn to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. These are the first words that Jacob has heard from God in 20 years. These are the first words that Jacob has heard God speak to him since Bethel. And they are the exact same words that God spoke at Bethel. God said, someday I will bring you back to this land. And I will be with you. 20 years later is someday. God calls Jacob back to the land. And these words right here produce this profound change in Jacob. We'll see it more next week. But right now we see a great amount of change in Jacob's life. Every single thing that Jacob has experienced over the last 20 years is now in perspective. Because of what God has said right here. God has indeed been with him. God has indeed been watching over him. God has indeed been keeping his promises to bring him home. God is committed to Jacob. And this heart change is modeled in the rest of Jacob's life. We see this modeled in in this boldness to not just run to Canaan, but to follow God back to Canaan. We see this modeled in how he gives clarity to where this blessing has come from as he's talking to his wives in the next few verses. He doesn't say it's 95% my, uh, my uh, work that brings this blessing about and 5% God's. He doesn't even say it's 95% God's work and 5% mine. He says it's fully God who has been with me. This is what makes him realize that his father's God is real. And when he, when he signs a covenant with Laban, later on in chapter 31, he, he confesses the God of his father Isaac. And it is this moment right here that brings him not to leave Esau, to run away from Esau, but to deny the stolen birthright And to face Esau, his brother, all of these years later. Jacob's heart is changed. And it is changed by an encounter with God. So he goes to his wives and he says, I I, I feel like God is calling us to leave. And they agree with this decision to leave. They don't have any love for their father as well. And, And then we see why they don't like their father. In ancient times, when you would receive a bride price, you were supposed to take the majority, if not all of that, and give it to your daughters as a dowry. 
as a way to uh, ensure that they would be taken care of in case their husband dies or leaves them or something like that. But we notice here is that Laban does no such thing. Laban completely rejects the cultural rules of the day and keeps everything for himself and doesn't give his daughters anything. That's why they say we're like foreigners to him. He has turned his back on us. Now we will turn our backs on him. And so they set off for Canaan. And they do so while Laban is preoccupied with sheep shearing. It's a labor-intensive process. It would take a couple days for him to find out. And so they, they get a couple days head start. Laban, when he finds out, he sets off to catch up with him. And the language here of verses 22 and 23, which we're not going to read, is very militaristic. The language is clear that Laban has very bad intentions in store for Jacob and his family when he catches up with him. He might even kill every single one of them. But God intervenes. God speaks to Laban in a dream and tells Laban not to touch Jacob. God is committed to Jacob. And he watches over Jacob once more. And so when Laban catches up to him, he, he pretends that he has hurt feelings. He pretends that, that Jacob is in the wrong. That if he would have just told him, he would throw him a great big going away party. But uh, if you've uh, been with us and you've seen what Laban is like, this is just a, a play on words. He, he's just trying to play Jacob once more during this time. We see that he's resigned to the fact that Jacob is leaving, but he, but he is concerned about the theft of his household gods. Let's jump back to verse 19 to, to see these household gods come into this story. He, he, Laban thinks that Jacob has taken him, but the reality is found in verse 19. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Again, in, in verse 30. And now you have come, or now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Asked Laban. Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, and he did not find them. And he went out to, of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel's saddle and sat upon them. And Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of the woman is upon me. So he searched and he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Rachel stole these idols. Now the text doesn't tell us why. She very well could have stole them because she was still a little too much like her father and she thought that they would give her an extra protection. It could be that she wanted to prevent Laban from having that same sort of protection. She could have just done it completely out of spite. We don't really know what the reason is, but, but notice the, the inability of these gods to save themselves. Notice the comparison of Laban's gods and Jacob's one God. First, on the one hand, we have the God of Jacob. This God of Jacob brings blessing. This God of Jacob makes him great. This God of Jacob reveals himself to Jacob in a, in a dream. The same God prevents Laban from harming him. He is with Jacob every single step of the way. 
But then we look at Laban's gods, these false gods. Under their watch, Laban loses his wealth. Under their watch, his son-in-law leaves without any sort of knowledge. They can't prevent themselves from being stolen, and, and they mu- they're even now being desecrated by being sat on. On one hand, you have Jacob's God who rescues him time and time again, and on the other hand, you have Laban's gods who have to be rescued by Laban. This isn't the main focus of this passage, but this passage is clearly saying that there is only one God, and this is the God of Abraham. It is the God of Isaac and it is the God of Jacob. If you are worshiping another God, whatever that may be, it is worthless. It will fail you just like it failed Laban. And Laban looks and he looks and he can't find his idols. And, and this is about too much for Jacob to handle. And so he, he just flies off the handle. 20 years of abuse and deceit, being mistreated, and he just goes off on Laban. Enough is enough, and he he goes on this tirade, and I imagine that Rachel and Leah and their two servants had to cover the ears of their children as Jacob is saying all of this stuff. We probably have the edited version here in the Bible, but it concludes with this. Excuse me, it concludes with this in verse 42. It says this, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction. He saw the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. Jacob finally gets it. Jacob finally understands where his source of blessing comes from. He finally understands that God has been with him this entire time. Through it all, no matter what Laban tried to do, God was with him. And so this passage ends with a covenant between Jacob and Laban, not as a superior and an inferior, but now as equals. They pledge to not harm one another, and they go away probably for good. And the message of verse 42, that God is with Jacob rings loud and clear over this entire passage. So what can we learn? What can we learn specifically about God's commitment in this brief episode of Jacob's life? I think we can learn three more things about God's commitment. First, God is committed to his people. God is committed to his people. Maybe a better way of saying that is God is committed to being with his people. Throughout it all, In the midst of the highs, in the midst of the lows, God is with Jacob. God is with Jacob during this time. Even when Jacob does not realize it, God is with him. Do you believe that God is with you now? Do you believe that God is with you no matter what? That God is walking with you when you feel his presence and when you don't feel his presence. That, you, uh, that God is with you when you are following him and when you are turning your back on him in the midst of that one sin that you still cannot shake. God is committed to his people and he is with you in the midst of it all because he loves you. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. God is committed to transforming his people God is committed to transforming his people. We see that Jacob is not just uh, with God through all of this, but that God is shaping him. God is molding him. He is transforming him. He is clearly letting Jacob live in hardship. 
go through all of these hard things to slowly leave behind his selfishness. To slowly leave behind his pride, his dependence upon himself, and become more and more like God. The same thing is true in your life. God is committed to your transformation. God is committed to making you more and more like him. That's why he allows hard uh, times in your life. That's why he allows pain in your life. That's because he allows times for you to grow and for you to learn. It's because he loves you. And because he loves you, he is committed to your growth. He's committed to you becoming more and more like his son. God is committed to the transformation of his people. And third and finally, God is committed to protecting his children. God is committed to protecting his children. Even when Laban is determined to do Jacob harm, God intervenes. And God intervenes for you as well. God intervenes for you as well in adversity in hardship, in harm, God provides you with protection. You might say, well, how? How is that? How is that true when we look at the stories that are on the news? It seems like each and every day of Christians suffering and even dying in the Middle East on, the hands, on behalf of the hands of ISIS. How does God provide protection for them? How does God provide protection for me when I face hardship and affliction today as well? God's word remains true. God's protection for us is first and foremost protection from the assaults of the evil one. Zechariah tells us this powerful story of what God does for us each and every day. It says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to, and to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. When you sin, the great accuser is standing before God, accusing you, telling God to have it out for you, to unleash his wrath upon you. And in one sense, Satan is completely justified in asking for that. As we turn our backs on God, as we reject God every day, we are deserving of his wrath. We are deserving of being outcasts in his kingdom when we lie, when we are selfish, when we lash out in anger at others. We're heaping up wrath from the Almighty. But in the midst of those times, in the midst of those accusations, God is gracious. God clothes us with new, clean linens. And it's because of his son. It's because of his son. His son drank the cup of wrath that was meant for each and every one of us. And that's the key to God's commitment to us. It's the cross. It's at the cross that we, sh we see that God is with us. 
It's at the cross that we see that God is greater than the accuser. He is greater than the sin that lives within each and every one of us. He is greater than those who are against us in this world. This is true in Jacob's life. It is true in our lives. God is greater because of the cross. My favorite hymn probably of all time, is a hymn that's relatively recent. Um, It's Before the Throne of God Above. And this hymn tells us about the great commitment that God has to each and every one of us. That God is committed because uh, because of his son to help us overcome our sin. I think we've done it a couple times here at Crosswinds. Uh, we don't do it too often. Um, but, but there's a tendency when we're singing to, to overlook the, the impact, the significance of the words that we say. And so as we close, I just invite you to stand. And, and we're going we're gonna to say these words together. We're not going to sing them. We're just going to say these words together. We're going to say them as our confession. We're going to say these things as, a, as our prayer, as our rejoicing and our response to God's commitment to us. So let's say these words. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me fence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray. God, we rejoice that it is in you that we can see most clearly your commitment to us, your love for us, and the ways that you are at work on our behalf. God, we look to you, to the risen lamb, to the one who is our perfect spotless righteousness. As we look at our own lives and we we see the sin, the stains of our iniquity, the ways that we've turned our backs on you, we are so very thankful that he is our righteousness, that he is our rock, that he is our hope in the midst of hardship and in the midst of uncertainty that we face each day. Give us strength to cling to that, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.